Good morning. Um, the reading today is John 13, verses 1 to 20. Um, it can be found on page 900 in the Church Bibles. John chapter 13. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it round his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped round him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he'd washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example, that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Thank you very much to Graham and Derek, who had a little fight up at the lectern, and uh, to our musicians. And um, thank you for all the encouragement you gave me last week that my new watch, which checks my pulse, temperature, whether I've got COVID, all manner of different things, uh, kept me to time last week. So let's see if it can happen twice. Now, um, here's a question for you. What does it look like to live for the glory of God. What does it look like to live for the glory of God? It looks like the life of our dear brother, uh, Dick Anderson. Someone that we loved a great deal, and you could pick that up, not least from Derek's emotion as he spoke of him and prayed for the family. Dick is now with Jesus, but what was it about his life that displayed a life lived for the glory of God. What does it look like to live for the glory of God? Now let's be quiet for a moment and pray that God will teach us by his spirit from his word 
the answer to that question. Dear Father, please teach us by your Spirit from your Word what it means and what it looks like to live for the glory of God. In an appropriate way, help us to learn from Dick's example, a man we knew and loved who has gone before us. But most of all, help us learn from your word and from the life and example of the Lord Jesus Christ. Teach us by your spirit, from your word, about the living word Jesus. And we pray this in his name and for his sake. Amen. Now, on Sunday mornings through July and August, beginning today, we are going to be turning to John's Gospel, chapters 13 through 17. John's Gospel, one of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, has a prologue and an epilogue. The prologue is perhaps familiar to us from Christmas time. Um, some great truths, some great verses in it. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That's John 1, the prologue. And the epilogue is John 21, which focuses on Peter's forgiveness and reinstatement after his denial of the Lord Jesus. Three times Peter denied Jesus. And then three times Jesus asks Peter the same question, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And three times Peter declares his love for Jesus. And three times the Lord Jesus commissions Peter into Christian service. Feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my lambs. So the prologue, the focus is on Jesus, who he is. The epilogue, the focus is still on Jesus, but also on a forgiven sinner whose life has been transformed by Jesus. And in between the prologue and the epilogue, John's gospel is divided into two halves. The first half, chapters 1 to 12, is often called the book of the signs. And in the book of the signs, Jesus performs a mighty work or miracle, followed by an explanation of its significance. So, for example, he heals a blind man and then claims and explains that he is the light of the world. In volume 2, chapters 30 to 20, often called the book of Jesus' passion or his glory, focuses on his saving work, his death, resurrection, ascension, and return to glory, and the giving of the person of the Holy Spirit. Now, our section is chapters 13 through 17. Uh, often called the farewell discourse of Jesus or the upper room discourse. Chapters 13 to 17 is an extended address, teaching of his disciples. It all happens on one evening, the night before Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus shares his heart. He reveals the depth of his heart, his love for his heavenly Father and the passionate care for his disciples and all future believers. And this last speech or teaching before his death begins with Jesus washing his disciples' feet. Now, just two headings to help us understand and apply this. 
Firstly, how Jesus lived for the glory of God. And second, how we live for the glory of God, which was our question with which we began. First then, how Jesus lived for the glory of God. And the answer here in John 13 is by serving us. Now read with me verses 1 and 2 again. It's helpful if you can just follow if you have a Bible or just listen. Before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Let me give you another translation of that final phrase, he loved them to the end. This is better, I think. He showed them the full extent of his love. Now, the setting, get this in your mind, Jesus having a meal with his disciples in a private home. It is an intimate scene. They would be lying on rush mats on the floor on one side, their heads together around a table, their feet out towards the edges of the room. It is an intimate scene with people who have worked and lived together for a number of years, and the shadow of the cross looms large, very large. It is the next day. Fear and uncertainty characterizes the group. One of them will betray him. And Jesus knew, John writes, that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father. And between this moment, that night in that room, and his departure out of the world to the Father, there are the momentous events of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And Jesus wants to hear the night before his death, explain to his disciples the significance of his death, why he must die and what his death and resurrection achieves. And he explains this to them by symbolically washing his disciples' feet. And this act of washing his disciples' feet and the act to which it points, washing his disciples clean through his death on the cross, reveals to them and us the extent of his love. Now, there's some really special stuff in this part of Scripture, and I want us to pause on that phrase that we might rightly understand it and take it to our hearts. He loved them to the end, or he showed them the full extent of his love. What does that mean exactly? Now, I don't think we are to understand that phrase, he showed them the full extent of his love, simply as an example of the extraordinary love of Jesus to us. Nor, I think, are we to understand it as the supreme example of the love of Jesus to us. Here's how we're to understand it. How much does the Lord Jesus love us? What does the cross reveal about the love of Jesus to us, for us? It is the full extent of his love. 
in that there is no expression or possibility or capacity for divine love that is greater. God is love, or love is who God is, and this is the fullness of God's love. There is nothing held back. It is the absolute totality of the expression of the love of God. How could there be anything held back from this expression of love if the love of God the Father gives the Son to die? Earlier in John's Gospel, Jesus' words convey this, for God so loved the world, he loved them to the end of his love. He showed them the full extent of his love. And certainly over this past week, I was trying to ponder this to get my head around this. And let me encourage you to pray for understanding and mind of heart of what it means. It means that your salvation expresses the absolute limit of God. It means that your salvation expresses the absolute limit of God who is love. And one might rightly say that the love that is bound in your salvation, if you are a Christian, is limitless, infinite, divine, and perfect. Now ponder that. I can't really find better words to express it. Try and sort out the clutter. The love that saves us is the absolute limit of the capacity of divine love in our ordinary lives. It is how every believer, every saved person is loved to the full extent of God's love. Now, that is a marvelous truth. Now, this is the truth Help us to understand it, God. Help us to, to take in that it took every ounce or part of the divine love to save us. During supper, verse 2, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. And as I said, Jesus would have been reclining on these mats around a low table, each leaning on his own arm, customary the left, feet radiating outwards from the table. And Jesus pushes himself up from his own mat. He was the host at the meal. He rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garment he took a towel, tied it round his waist. He poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel. Now, notice, and this is important, the relationship between verse 3 
And then verses 4 and 5. Jesus, verse 3, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. Let me paraphrase. Jesus, knowing, conscious, aware that he is the eternal son the eternal word, into whose hands his Father has given all things. Jesus, conscious of his divinity, conscious that he has come from glory and is going back to glory with God. Absolutely clear as to who he is in his divinity takes the place and the role of the servant. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it round his waist. He took the place and role of a servant and began to wash his disciples' feet. And this is Jesus demonstrating by his actions what Paul describes in Philippians. You might know these words, Jesus being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus, being in very nature God, took the nature of a servant and humbled himself. He laid aside his outer garments and washed his disciples' feet. A picture that points us to what happened the next day. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. To wash our sins, to cleanse us from sin. Now we have spoken about the full extent of God's love to save us. The full extent of God's love that it takes to save us requires the full extent of humility, of humiliation of Jesus. Let me say that again. These are profound things to grasp. The full extent of God's love that it takes to save us requires the full extent of humility or humiliation of Jesus even to wash the disciples' feet. The most menial, lowly task that a servant could perform. And of course it points to the next day. He served us by becoming not just obedient to death, but even death on the cross. He served us not by attending to us, but by washing our feet. He served us by being obedient not just to death, but even death on a cross. The ignominy, the shame, the humiliation, the degradation, the offense of the cross, that is the extent of Jesus' humble service that it took to save us, to cleanse us from our sin. And what you're beginning to see is the dynamic of the gospel, that it took the limit of God's love to save us, and it took the limit of humiliation and humility to save us. 
The gospel is a massive, massive deal. And what makes it even more poignant is that Jesus did not forget his divinity or abandon his divinity when he knelt down to wash the disciples' feet and when he went to the cross. It was as the divine, eternal son that he knelt to wash our feet. It was as the eternal divine son that he hung on the cross to forgive our sins. And that is what makes the gospel so astonishing, so moving, so life-changing. He did not empty himself of his divinity. In his full divinity, he emptied himself into the full extent of our humanity and became our servant. Now, let me just come at that sideways. Think of it like this. We were created to serve God as human beings. And in order to save us, Jesus came to serve us. That is the magnitude of salvation. That is the full extent of God's love. And then a question that John confronts us with. Will we accept that Jesus must wash our feet? That Jesus must die on the cross to save us, to cleanse us from our sin? And so he came, verse 6, to Simon Peter and said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And, and Peter, I think, is thinking, I should be washing your feet. Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Is Peter struggling to accept that he needs to be made clean? Is Peter struggling to accept that Jesus, his master, the one he serves, needs to serve him? Or is Peter struggling with a concept, the apparent extraordinary contradiction that the eternal Son of God must so humble himself. All of these are reasons that people say no to the cleansing, the forgiveness of sins only Jesus can give. I do not need Jesus to do this for me, for I am not that dirty. My salvation is surely about me serving Jesus, not him serving me. Or I will not accept that the eternal Son of God must act in this way. It is humiliating. And I cannot accept it. To which Jesus answers, whatever our reasons, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. To which Peter answers, well, give me a shower. <laughs> give me a bath. Pour this on me. Wash me clean. And Jesus came to Simon Peter to serve him to wash him clean. And the next day Jesus came to Simon Peter to serve him to wash him clean from his sins by dying on the cross. Jesus came to Simon Peter 
And Jesus comes to every person as the truth about him, as we are reflecting on that truth this morning, and his saving work is explained to them. Jesus comes to everyone. Everyone. Jesus met with Dick when he was a medical student at Barts in London. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Dick said yes to the cleansing from sin he knew he needed. He said yes to Jesus as the one to cleanse him. He said, yes, Jesus, I accept that you need to serve me to save me. You see how much humility that takes? I accept that you, the eternal Son of God, need to serve me to save me. That blows religion way out the door. And from that time, Dick shared life with Jesus. A forgiven life, a life of purpose, a life of hope. A life of hope because to have a share with Jesus is to share in his glory. So Jesus meets with us as our servant to save us. Let him serve you, that you might have a share with him for the rest of your life when you lie down and die at the moment of death and forevermore. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Jesus lived for the glory of God by serving us. Now, secondly, and much shorter, partly because we've already strayed onto this ground, how do we live for the glory of God? First, and this is where Dick's testimony is very powerful and real. His testimony is not about what he achieved. His testimony is that he accepted the cleansing from sin that Jesus wants to give us. You cannot live a life for the glory of God unless you are a forgiven sinner. You may live a life that is glorious or successful, but you cannot live for the glory of God, which is a life that truly matters, because it is a life that is selfless and purposeful and never, ever ends. You cannot live a life for the glory of God unless you are a forgiven sinner, because it is through his saving work that Jesus glorifies God. And so every time a sinner is saved, God is glorified. You cannot live a life for the glory of God unless you are a forgiven sinner. And a life truly lived for the glory of God, as Dix was, was daily conscious of that. Not a consciousness that breaks us or discourages us, but a consciousness that makes us 
shapes us, encourages us, envisions us. Nor is it a consciousness of God that we manufacture by our efforts. It is a consciousness of God that comes through the indwelling spirit. And that is how Dick lived all through his life as a Christian, conscious that he was a forgiven sinner. He never strayed far in his mind and heart from the cross. He understood the humility of Jesus toward him. And so in that light, the light of the humility of Christ, he lived a humble life of service for Jesus expressed to others. So read with me from verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put his outer garments and resumed his place, Jesus said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, for you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do as I have done to you. Truly I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Jesus lived for the glory of God by serving us. He washed our feet. We are to live for the glory of God by serving others. The logic is to follow the example of Jesus. Now understand this. We do not live... We do not live as servants in order to become children of God, sons of God, co-heirs with Christ. We do not live as servants in order to become saints or citizens of the kingdom of God. We live as servants because we are children of God, because we are sons of God. We live as servants because we are saints. And like Jesus, who knew who he was and all that had been given to him, took upon himself the nature of a servant. As Christians, knowing who we are in Christ and all that has been given to us, our status as children of God, take upon ourselves the nature of a servant. We do not do that in our own strength. We do it in the power of the Spirit of Jesus who dwells within us. We live for the glory of God by serving others, by serving one another as Christians. What does it mean to serve one another? Think of a church family. Remember the epilogue, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Feeding my lambs and my sheep means feeding one another with the word of God. That's what this means in John's gospel. Yes, it means preaching and Bible teaching and Bible studies with adults and children, the sheep and the lambs. But beyond that, all that one-to-one -one interaction with the Bible reading together, turning to precious truths, letting the promises and the word of God put people's hands into the hands of God, singing to one another that the word of God will dwell in us richly, singing in a single room in Ward 202, singing hymns, 
singing songs, feeding one another with the word and caring for one another, tending the sheep. What does that mean? It means looking out for the sheep who are struggling, limping, straying, lost, and selflessly serving them, spending time with them, caring for them practically, welcoming them into your life, into your home, sharing your life with them. And as you feed and care as a servant, it is sacrificial and there can be suffering. Serve. Take upon yourself the nature of the servant because you are a child of God and wash one another's feet. Feed my lambs. Tend my sheep. Feed my sheep. Does that define us as a church family? Are you, I, found kneeling before one another, serving, loving, caring, teaching, praying, encouraging, challenging? And that is exactly what Dick was like, exactly what he was like. Even in his weakness, in spite of his weakness, sitting there in his wheelchair, And one last dimension of what it means for Christians to live for the glory of God by serving others is taking up the torch as a messenger of Jesus. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Every Christian is commissioned into service. To serve one another, our fellow Christians, and alongside that, Christians commissioned into global missions. Dick's mission field for much of his life was Africa. Latterly, his mission field was EH17, 7TA or B, Green Park in Liberton. What is your mission field? Where is it? Let me finish with Colin's testimony about Dick. Colin is sitting here this morning, a resident of Green Park, a close friend of Dick and a brother in Christ. Colin wrote this on Friday, the day Dick died. The Reverend Dr. Richard Anderson, my guide, my mentor, but most of all my friend. I first remember Dick when he could be seen tending with great care and love the roses in the garden outside his flat. The next time we met was in my house when, along with other residents, we had met to discuss the maintenance of our communal grounds. That night I was wearing a t-shirt with the word Samburu across the front. Dick asked me, did I know the Samburu tribe? I said I'd met some when I visited Kenya for a safari. I later found out Dick had spent many years in Kenya. We talked briefly for a bit, but we were quickly brought back to the reason for the meeting. We met various times after that, and whenever we talked about he would always mention delicately but sincerely a word about being a Christian. Then on one occasion when we met, he asked me if I would like to go to a carol service. I agreed, and we went to the Pollock Halls. When we got there, I was amazed by the number of people. I asked if this is the usual number, and he said maybe a few more as it was Christmas. When we eventually got to Morningside, there was the same numbers, and I noticed how many young folk there were. 
One day, Dick asked if I would like to read the Bible with him. This was not something I had been in the habit of doing, but once we started, I began to find it fascinating. I had been away from church for a long time, but with Dick's enthusiasm and genuine love for Jesus, I was quickly hooked and looking for more. We would be reading something and I'd asked if he could explain it to me, which of course he did. On many occasions, he'd refer to another passage from the Bible off the top of his head, so to speak, which perfectly described what I needed to know. He'd berate himself by saying how bad his memory was. I'm amazed to think what it must have been at its best. And I still recall the Friday when I said to him, Dick, I would love to have what you have. He said to me, It's there for you, Colin, just reach out by faith to Jesus and take it. And from that day on, I believed that the Lord Jesus had died for my sins so that I might live and in time join him in glory. I will be forever grateful that I was wearing that T-shirt on that night and that the Lord gave me that blessed time with Dick and I was able to call him my friend. Thank you, Lord Jesus for your servant. Now, let's not eulogize Dick. He lived his life conscious that he was a forgiven sinner. He knew he was a child of God, and yet he assumed the nature and the life of a servant. And he served you, and he served me, And he served the people of Africa. And he served the people of Green Park. And so can we. Somebody said to me yesterday, who's going to pick up the torch? The answer is me and you. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus Christ, we want to focus our minds and hearts not on Dick's example, though he is inspiring to us, but on the example of the Lord Jesus Christ, on the example of the Lord Jesus Christ, who knowing who he was, took upon himself the nature of the servant. Lord, help us to live purposeful lives as Christians ever conscious that we are forgiven sinners, ever conscious of who we are in Christ, and consciously therein, taking upon ourselves the nature of the servant, emptying ourselves into humility, kneeling at one another's feet, speaking the truth, loving and caring, and proclaiming the gospel in our mission field. And Lord, if we're not yet Christians, help us to heed Jesus' words. If I do not wash you clean, you have no part with me. Grant to us the humility to be served by the saving work of Christ. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.